The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Trad Reviews on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and joining me today is the executive producer of Restoration Radio, Justin Soder. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be here. For those of you who don't know, Trad Reviews is a monthly episode here on the network that covers a book, a film, and a board game. And Justin is going to be with us for the first part of today's show. He's, I'm not, I didn't manage to drag him in for all three segments today. But uh, And our segments today are, firstly, we're going to be talking about the movie Beckett. Then we'll be talking about poetry, going a little off script and not talking about one book in particular, but about a collection of poetry by Father Gerard Manley Hopkins. And finally, we'll finish with a review of the board game Puerto Rico, uh, carrying on in the line of Settlers of Catan, which Justin uh, was, was on the episode for. Well, Justin, I'd like to, to start by asking you to uh, tell us how you came across the film and what your initial impressions of the film were before we, we get into a deeper discussion. Well, being a student of uh, old Catholic movies, or being a fan of old Catholic movies, I suppose you could say, uh, Beckett is definitely uh, one of those movies that you'll find in most, uh, you know, most Catholic lists of people that recommend the movie. I went Went and took a look at it. It, it was on uh, Amazon. It was very, very cheap. It was, um, it was, like, I don't know, like a dollar, buck fifty, or something like that. And so, watched the movie, and the movie, I thought, had many excellent qualities. It had some problems as well, but which we'll discuss towards the end of the show, uh, or the end of this segment. But overall, I thought the acting was was just tremendous. I thought Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole just did fabulous jobs in the screenplay and in the, and and in their their dialogues back and forth. The movie's a bit painful for a Catholic to watch, though, because if you understand what's happening here, you're seeing the split. You're seeing the original schism away from the Catholic faith. You're seeing how the break happened. It's very difficult, and of course, Charles Coulomb, who's a frequent guest on our network, says that King Henry VIII was probably the most important character in world history, and you're seeing that here. So there's also some powerful aspects of this where you see a genuine conversion take place, because you see you see Thomas Beckett as just Henry's friend, and them palling around, and, and uh, this, this, this deep friendship that they had together and then you see his obedience to his king in becoming a bishop, this real conversion. And Henry didn't expect the conversion to be real. He expected the, taking the title of bishop simply to be his pawn. Uh, 
you're taken down this path of true conversion and taking his new role as a bishop deadly serious. He's an interesting character in this movie. I think it's is really, in terms of Catholic movies, uh, very powerful. And I think it's uh, there are some high points of the movie where you begin to see just how powerful the Catholic Church was at the time and how much respect was paid to the office of a bishop. The general view that people had in their minds of obedience to the church authority, you know, you compare and contrast that with today, and it's, it's, it's just despicable to think where we are today compared to that time. But overall, I, I mean, I thought the movie was, with the exception of a couple of points, I thought the movie was, was excellent. I think there were a few small things that could have been done to make it a lot better, obviously, but there were there were the, there were some historical inaccuracies, which I think you're going to walk us through. But overall, I, I would say that for a Catholic, it's a it's a pretty powerful screenplay for a, for a sad chapter, obviously, in the history of the world. Well, as you say, there are historical inaccuracies, and, and I think this is the challenge when you're taking historical events, which don't necessarily mold into a compelling two three hour movie. Well just as we saw in Man for All Seasons, which we may see on a future trad reviews, uh, we see some, we, we don't see uh, Thomas More's ascetical life brought out in A Man for All Seasons. Uh, and we, we see a lot of inaccuracies in Beckett. But the overall picture, as Justin laid out, is true. There's a conflict between church and state. There's a conflict between two friends, confidants. And then there's a conflict within himself, Thomas turning and becoming uh, what he is called to, not simply uh, the Chancellor of England, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, head of head of the Church in England, uh, apart from apart from the Holy Father, of course. There's there's some important lessons here for Catholics today about bearing our crosses. I mean, obviously Thomas was was very very conflicted with uh, having to choose God over his friend. You know, having to choose his role as bishop over the role of the deep bond between he and Henry, and I, I think that's a very important lesson for us in in the modern world who may have to struggle with family or friends or whatever. Where our faith—I mean, I just went through this myself. I won't go into the details, but where you know your friendship and your faith conflict with someone, where they may have a deep disagreement with you or something like that. I think this is a you know it's a very important much like much like you know Thomas More, uh, Saint Thomas More I mean where he had to most definitely make some decisions and uh, I, yeah I think that was uh, another important lesson to take home from this is that it sets an example for what we have as Catholics to choose we have to choose God or we have to choose man. Well, there's there's lots of different ways we could go actually from that, Justin, because I'm thinking about all the threads you brought up in your initial impressions. But why don't we why don't we start with some of the the more superficial things? Let's talk about the performances of, of Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, not necessarily known uh, as as Catholics. I think for for me, one of the interesting things was whoever instructed Richard Burton during the ordination ceremony was clearly a good master of ceremonies because Richard Burton, obviously never having been a bishop one day in his life manages to pull off his first Episcopal blessing, I thought quite well, you know? <laughs> uh, so he must, yes, I was he just imagining someone training him, okay, now bring your hands up and over and down, and you're going to go three crosses across. And he must have watched video. He must have maybe even gone to a pontifical mass or maybe even watched an ordination. Because for me, one of the very, very special reasons to watch this film, and maybe not to watch this film, but to watch this clip of this film is it's the only movie I know of in English in which we see the rite of Episcopal consecration. 
where mm-hmm. we see someone become a bishop. And of course, it's done in English. Obviously, the, the rites in, in Latin, but the translation is faithful, and you hear all of these things. And we, we, you know, Episcopal consecration is something that only a few Catholics have seen in our lifetime. Uh, the Archbishop, Archbishop Lefebvre, obviously consecrating bishops. Uh, the three SSPX bishops consecrating their bishop down in Brazil. Bishop Dolan's consecration, Bishop Sanborn's consecration. So there hasn't been a lot of these. So the fact that you can see it at leisure in English and watch all of that, it's very, very special. That's a, another thing I like about uh, the movie A Nun Story, which ha- is it's something for another time. But we watch uh, someone walking through traditional vows and the religious life. And we get a little sneak peek inside. So I really, really appreciated that part of it. Uh, as far as um, getting some insight as a Catholic into something we don't normally get to see. Then there's also, I think, Justin's favorite scene uh, in, in the entire movie, right, Justin? Lord yeah, Gilbert, absolutely. Baron of England, by the grace of his majesty, King Henry II, seized upon the person of a priest of the Holy Church and unlawfully did hold him in custody. Furthermore, in the presence of Lord Gilbert. And by his command, his men seized upon this priest when he tried to escape and put him to death. This is the sin of murder and sacrilege. In that, Lord Gilbert has rendered no act of contrition or repentance and is at the moment at liberty in the land. We do here and now separate him from the precious body and blood of Christ and from the society of all Christians. We exclude him from our Holy Mother Church and all her sacraments in heaven or on earth. We declare him excommunicate and anathema. We cast him into the outer darkness. We judge him damned with the devil and his fallen angels and all the reprobates to eternal fire and everlasting pain. Mm-mm. <laughs> you know, we were joking uh, before you play that intro. Uh, I think you did that on a Francis watch earlier this season. And I said, anytime anyone is feeling down about the times in which we find ourselves, just insert Bergoglio for Lord Gilbert. Yeah, that's a very powerful scene. I think that's the crescendo of the movie because that's the point when Thomas uh, uh, really, he signed his death warrant obviously. And he knew what he was doing, but he had to choose, he had to choose God over man. And it's interesting too, because, you know, when he went to see the Pope at the time, he didn't really get a, you know, a warm and fuzzy support about what he was about to do. He had to make the decision for himself. Kind of reflecting on what you said a minute ago about the acting, I find it fascinating that, I mean, up until the day that he died, Richard Burton was an avowed atheist. I mean, he was not a Catholic even though he was brought up in Catholic schools, from what I understand, uh, you know, he became an atheist and never looked back. So I find it fascinating that, you know, here we have this powerful scene, a very powerful scene of the excommunication. And this is done by a man who is a self-proclaimed non-believer, doesn't believe in anything. Right. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll tie up all these historical inaccuracies later on, the, the excommunication of, of Lord Gilbert, uh, as opposed to what actually was the defining event. But again, as you say, within the construct of this film, within the construct of the dramatic play 
which I think has more to tell us about the church at the time and relationships at the time. Uh, It is very, very powerful. And that sound you hear, that clattering, if you've never heard it, it's a large number of tall candles uh, that are lit, being turned upside down, uh, stumped out on the ground, and then thrown to the right. And that is to symbolize the extinguishing of your baptismal candle. Because now as you're excommunicated, the light no longer shines. You are not only is it extinguished, but that, that symbolic throwing to the right is that, uh, is that sign of excommunication. So, well, Justin, we talked about some of the, these, these superficial things, the acting of Peter O'Toole, uh, my, 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 uh, favorite scene of watching the, uh, ordination, the, or the consecration of, uh, of a bishop, uh, your favorite scene of the, the, uh, excommunication, can we dig in a little bit more uh, into what you were talking about with the, the respect due to the church? What, what did you mean when you, you saw that? Or what did you mean when you said that? What, what did you see that made you say that? Well, there's a scene, and it's towards the end of the movie, where the heat is being ramped up on, on St. Thomas. And, and he's, he knows that he's going to confront his captors. This is, this is after the excommunication, and Henry is furious, absolutely furious, that he went ahead and did this and drove that mortal stake between their friendships. And there's a dialogue between St. Thomas and one of, one of the knights or one of the guards there, and obviously they're Catholic, and he walks in in full vestments, miter, crozier, and everything, and all the men who are there to arrest him or, or, to, or to take him captive all get down on one knee because they realize they're in the presence of a bishop. And then, you know, he goes through a little speech to them all about what they're doing and how it's wrong and on and on. Then he goes to walk out and one of the guards takes out his sword and Thomas snaps his head back. And there's this powerful, powerful exchange or this powerful statement where he says, heed your sword before you impale your soul upon it. And dead silence. Dead silence. The man puts his sword back into his scabbard, and Thomas walks away. And it's, it's like uh, you think about the power that a bishop once held, the esteem, the respect, the obedience, the loyalty that a bishop once held. And then you contrast that with today where we are surrounded by nothing but apostates and heretics who are parading around in purple hats and miters and who don't believe in the Catholic faith, who don't hold the Roman Catholic faith, who despise the Roman Catholic faith. You think about how far we've fallen. And for me, I think I had to pause the movie at that point. It was like, wow. You sit there and you think about that and you realize the gravity and the sadness of the times in which we find ourselves. Mm. Indeed. When we think about that conflict with church and state, it's it's something we live it with. Um, you live with it in America. That battle has sort of been won and, and lost over here in Europe. But this is the beginning of it. You, you talk about Henry VIII. This movie is obviously based around Henry II and happens hundreds of years before Henry VIII. But that tension was always there, wasn't it? It wasn't. It wasn't something that just popped out of the ground. Uh, because no. uh, because of Henry's uh, uh, marriage, his valid marriage. Um, I want to I want to work backwards from from that part of the film that you just described uh, to to kind of cover some of the historical inaccuracies um, and 
and help help that uh, inform our discussion, have that help inform our discussion. And the first is, we're going to talk about that at the very end of the movie. Obviously, you know the ending of the movie. <laughs> St. Thomas of Beckett is a martyr. He's in Canterbury Cathedral. I'm hoping to get there next year to pay my respects. And he, the account uh, is clear. There were many witnesses to his, his execution. He was uh, confronted by four knights uh, in the film, as, as well in real life. Um, but the knights did not come in in full armor in real life. They came in with their, their chain armor hidden, and they had demanded that he would go to answer charges. Uh, and uh, Thomas refused. He wasn't going to answer any charges, and he went on to continue for Vespers. The knights ran out, grabbed uh, the rest of their weapons, and came back in and then, uh, and then killed him. So that part is obviously, and it was done in a very gruesome manner. You know, his, uh, his uh, head was chopped off and his brains spilled out. And one of the knights kicked the head and brains all over the, the floor of the cathedral. So that part of it, we don't, obviously it's Hollywood in the, in the 60s. So we don't see anything nearly so violent, but we do see that Thomas is struck down and he, he, he uh, makes a good death. And um, from, uh, from what we hear from witnesses, uh, St. Thomas said, for the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. So that part, uh, the end, Thomas's martyrdom, accurate mostly. Uh, there's not really any real inaccuracies to talk about there. If we walk back to the excommunication scene, um, again, the Lord Gilbert gambit that's used here, that there was somebody who was harboring uh, a priest uh, who was convicted of, of some things here, we start to see Hollywood inserting its agenda into the movie. And I would argue really try to make this um, poisonous in some ways for Catholics, because there's so many good things about the movie that you've heard Justin and I talk about. And then they start doing things like this. So it was obviously some priest who was, uh, who was charged with notorious conduct and the church was trying to protect him. Does that sound familiar? And in reality, what had happened was because of an earlier conflict under the chancellorship of Thomas, which all of, a lot of that part of it was true, that there was an eventual conflict between Thomas's chancellor and Thomas's archbishop, that uh, the king had, uh, had, had his son crowned uh, at York, the heir apparent. Well, York is not where kings of England get uh, crowned. They are crowned in Canterbury. Canterbury has that privilege. And Thomas reacted, St. Thomas, sorry, St. Thomas reacted uh, and, and excommunicated all three that were involved in that coronation. There were bishops um, that were involved in that coronation. And that is what led to, um, led to the conflict with Henry. But then this goes back further. Okay, were were Thomas uh, was Saint Thomas really drinking buddies essentially with Henry? Because that's what we're led to believe. You know, they're drinking buddies, and this is also not true. Um, he wasn't a Saxon as is portrayed in the movie. So there was that that Saxon Norman antipathy. Well, Saint Thomas wasn't a Saxon. He was a Norman. He was he was uh, he was born in England. Uh, and of course, he has Norman blood, so you know he has French blood. But that family had been there for for a hundred years at that point. 
And then Beckett um, rose up uh, just by being a, a clerk. He was noticed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald. Theobald hired him. And then he raised up and he became an archdeacon. He didn't proceed any further into the priesthood at that time. But um, it was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald, who had noticed Thomas and recommended him to the king for chancellor because there was, a, uh, there was an empty post. And here's where Henry got to know Thomas and really got to like him. Uh, they found him that he was very competent and honest. And in fact, Henry had sent his son to go live at Beckett's house. It was a tradition at times for, um, it was observed most more in France than in England, but of course the Normans living in England at the time did this as well, is that sometimes you would send your sons to go live at other noble families' houses so you could observe their manners and, and also, it was sort of a study abroad, but, but not really, you know, they, they could go, go live there for a while. Well, this fostered a close relationship between uh, Thomas and uh, St. Thomas and, and the young Henry there. And uh, that was another way that, that Henry got to know Thomas was his son was in the care uh, of him. So, you know, obviously this man's tr a trusted chancellor. My son's staying there. I only hear good things. When the time comes for the Archbishop of Canterbury to be replaced, and when I say replaced, the other Archbishop had died. It wasn't as if they retired him. He died in his post. That's what you do as a churchman normally. And uh, Henry thought, well, I've got my man. Uh, Thomas has been working for me this whole time as an archdeacon. I'm going to make him Archbishop of Canterbury. And the idea being that he's my man. So he was ordained. He was ordained. And, and the movie gets this right as well. He was ordained a priest. And the next day he was ordained a bishop <laughs> and, uh, or an archbishop. And he was made the Archbishop of Canterbury the day after that. So that, that part is accurate as well. So, but again, you can see within the construct of the film, they smooth over or, or in fact are in some ways just plain old inaccurate, but it doesn't really change the thrust of the story, which again, I think is the conflict between church and state interests and the idea that the, the state seeing the church as an instrument, as something to be controlled, as something to be feared, rather than as a, a cooperator, as something that helps with everything that you do. And I think that part is true both in the movie and in real life. Justin, does, does that change the movie for you hearing some of those inaccuracies? Um, I, I think I take it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, this is not a, a faithful historical account. I mean, you're always going to have Hollywood's interpretation and things like that to create a movie dynamic. So it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't change in terms of the point I liked about the movie, but it, it does make me aware that, the historical inaccuracies are going to be there. And I think the lesson is it's still incumbent upon us to study church history. So we actually recognize these things. I had alluded a little bit to some poison here, uh, Justin, by, by some of the, the threads. My question for you is, can we recommend this film? Uh, why or why not? Well, it's sad to say, um, no, I can't recommend the film. I mean, I can recommend it with a caveat, and we're going to talk about that right now. The problem with the movie, really, is that there is one scene in this movie, and of course, this was a lesson for me. It was a lesson that usually, for any modern film, I do my homework. You know, I check as many parental reviews as I possibly can find and everything, but I, I was sort of lulled into this, oh, well, this was a movie that was made in you know, 1964, so this has to be safe to watch. There's no problems with it. 
And uh, boy, did I learn a lesson. I learned a lesson because there's a scene in the movie where Henry, King Henry, is in bed with one of his courtiers, and he's, uh, I'm trying to G-rate this here, he essentially is commenting on a part of her anatomy, and Thomas is in there at the time. It's a bed scene. Now, there's, there's, there's no nudity, really, in the, in the movie that I'm aware of, but there's definitely a modesty and, in this one scene. And what really bothered me about this, about this scene is that it is completely and utterly gratuitous. There was positively no reason to put this in the movie, none. And yet, here it is, and it's like that one drop of arsenic in the cake batter. It's like that one fleck of metal in the compass that throws everything off. I said to myself, why, why would this be in there? And, then, and of course, there's some reasons behind why it's in there. And I think this is, of course, you look in the 1960s, the sexual revolution of the 1960s, and you see Hollywood beginning to sort of push the edge of the envelope here uh, to see what they could get away with. Ten years earlier, this would have been anathema to be in a movie. I mean, this would have just been unthinkable to put a scene like this in the movie. Now, of course, by today's standards, which, you know, anything goes, I mean, it's not, quote unquote, bad compared to today's standards. But the principle is that it is bad in the sense that it has no business being in the movie. It added nothing to the movie except someone's and, – and, of course, I would love to know who actually decided to put this in there. But it doesn't add anything to the movie whatsoever except the scene where you, you're left scratching your head saying, totally inappropriate, totally out of place. And, of course, like I said, it taught me a lesson because I said, look, this just goes to show you that you cannot just make some blanket um, – some blanket assumption that everything is okay in a movie. You really have to do your homework. You really have to read the parental ratings. I mean, even me being an adult and maybe falling a bit into that trap of thinking everything was fine, everything wasn't fine. So I would say that without editing this scene out of the movie, and there are some there are some services online now which are just coming into the the technological domain. Uh, and I can think of a couple of them that are working to clean up movies and take out profanity and nudity and vulgarities and things like that to make a movie watchable. So I would say, no, I can't recommend the movie unless this one scene, and it's only, I mean, the scene is only like 60 seconds long, maybe maybe 120 seconds long at most. If this scene were taken out of the movie, no problems with this entire movie. But that one scene in the movie is what has really, in my mind, tarnished the movie. Do you agree? Yeah, and I look at it as uh, used book shopping. You know, when you're when we're as as trads, we've got to go. You know, we go to uh, used bookstores and we find you know all of these uh, old. You know, we'll find like copies of the liturgical year and we'll we'll greedily take them up. Oh, you only want a dollar? Yeah, sure, I'll take all of them. And that's the thing is we have to do these reclamation projects. Obviously, we, we work on part of what we do at True Restoration is we, we try to do new stuff, completely new stuff from, from scratch. But also sometimes we have to go back and, and reclaim old projects. And part of that is these movies that in, in, in general can be instructive in, in many ways, but, uh, you know, have, have problems. And, and we would be remiss if we as trad reviews didn't, uh, didn't uh, bring this up. 
And uh, in fact, you know, when uh, when Justin had brought it up uh, as we were had selected the the movie to talk about, I hadn't seen the movie for for many years myself, and I recall that scene, and I I just was was uh, uh, sort of uh, thinking to myself that uh, I can't believe I didn't that didn't come out more more strongly in my mind, but I, I think I saw that probably when I was still in the Novus Ordo, where I, I'd come over and I just wasn't sensitized enough. I hadn't realized just how uh, how uh, how insidious these things could be. So um, that's something to, to keep in mind that what we're trying to do with Trad Reviews, hopefully, is give you the sense that we can't just turn our back and say, look, we can't do anything, right? We're, no movies, no books, nothing, because everything's evil. That would be Amish. Catholics aren't Amish, so we don't do that. It doesn't mean we go out and watch every movie that's out there, or even that you have to go watch any new movies. But what you can do is go back and maybe look at some of the movies that are are out there in the past, talk to other Catholics, talk to the clergy, uh, and say, you know, is this worthwhile? And and movies as, as an occasional recreation, not as a weekly, what are we going to do on Friday night? We're going to watch a movie I would strongly recommend against that. I think you've got to vary it. But a movie in moderation, maybe once a month or for a special occasion or a special feast day um, is well worth it. And I, as Justin said, there's editing software out there. If you can edit this, I think we can recommend it with the edit. Of course, depending upon what type of computer you're using, if you have a Mac, it comes with software where you can do video editing with little difficulty, really, and you could take the scene out of the movie, and you could you could recut the movie, and then you could watch it, and it would be great. It's somewhat embarrassing, obviously, that here we are talking about the movie from my perspective, and I didn't search this out. And like I said, the movie, as good as it was, was also a teaching moment for me, that you can't just go into things blindly just because, oh, well, it was made in the 60s. RO, it, it was made in the even even the or, 1950s. Or it appears on some list. I mean, you can go onto the Novus Ordo, and this is listed uh, on a list of Catholic movies. To oh watch. yeah, well that and a lot of other movies, which is <laughs> which are are just you know you scratch your head and say how in the world can this be recommended? But when you have those who don't really have the faith, well, it's not it shouldn't be too surprising to us. But you know, again, it was disappointing to me, and it and it, and it was one of those moments where not only was it a teaching moment in terms of what my obligations as a Catholic are to guard my soul, but also it was a teaching moment to see the forces that were at work in the 1960s. I would say this was probably, uh, this time period, the early 60s, was probably the genesis of this this revolution in Hollywood, which has led us up to what we have today, which is hedonism and pornography and all this other stuff. This was maybe like one of the first shots across the bow, if you will. Well, Justin? Thanks, um, as usual, for your time helping us unpack this movie and sharing your your thoughts. And uh, we'll let you get back to your your duties on the network. We're rushing towards the the end of the season. Uh, not that you'll be glad to have any rest or anything. But, no, uh, no, no. I love working nonstop. I live to work. <laughs> I'm a good I'm a good Puritan American here. I love that puritanical work ethic. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Justin, we thank you for your time and, and we'll, we, uh, we'll see you some other time. I don't want to keep tasking you with one extra uh, episode uh, a, a month in your rotation, but thanks for being a good sport and being on. This listeners, the last listeners, episode. don't believe that listeners. He doesn't, he doesn't mean that. <laughs> All right, Justin. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, we're very pleased to have on Trad Reviews uh, a guest we haven't had before, which is His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. And among uh, his theological and liturgical work that he does, uh, we're now adding his literary uh, love. 
And we're going to be talking about Father Gerard Manley Hopkins and his poetry today. Uh, but before we get into any of that, Your Excellency, let's uh, make sure that we, we start any segment of any show that you're present on the way that you want to. With, with, with a prayer, and uh, that's uh, very, the very best way to approach, indeed, all of life. Uh, the, the, the official prayer of the Church of the Collect for today, which um, I think we're, we're recording this segment, uh, is a very old day, and the Collect from the 19th Sunday after Pentecost seems especially appropriate to me for poetry in general, arts, and especially for the discussion of Father Jared Manley Hopkins. Let us pray. O Almighty and merciful God, in thy goodness keep us, we beseech thee, from all things hurtful, that we, being ready, both in body and soul, may accomplish those things which belong to thy service. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Good. Well, I'm going to pose three questions to you, and you can answer them in whatever order you want. Um, The first is, why poetry? You know, we have all these things that uh, we can spend our free time on. Uh, Why why does poetry matter? Um, Why Father Hopkins? And then I suppose, what poem would you like us to start with? Thank you. Um, Why poetry? Well, if you are a poetry lover... If you like to read poetry, we, we generally try to put a little bit of poetry called the Poetry Corner in our in our bulletin here at Singer to the Great. We've done it for years. You'll 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 note that um, well, it's with any, as with anything else of the arts, it's easy to dismiss it as sort of drudgery or work, more eating of your spinach. And some people, I'm sure, skip the Poetry Corner in our bulletin and have never read it. But if you've read it, or better yet, if you've listened. To poetry, because poetry is is, is really a, a matter of um, the ear and not just of the mind, the intellect. Then you know that poetry has an elevating way of capturing that which is ethereal, that which is really of of God, and it's very very hard to put exactly into prosaic. Uh, sentences that man sort of cobbles out on his own, whereas poetry, in that sense, comes a little bit closer to touching the face of God, to that, to those things which, uh, which well, the apostle says, which mind hath not seen or ear heard, and never has it even entered into a man's heart. What what God has prepared for them that that love Him. So poetry has a bit of uh, poetry has a bit of the eternal about it. It, it enables us. I think to be elevated, as, as good music would too, to be elevated, to be relaxed, to be inspired, and somehow to express that which is beyond expressing. So poetry at its very best serves serves the faith and serves spiritual life and serves Almighty God. Um, poetry. Then why Father Hopkins? I think that was that was one of the questions too. Jared Manley Hopkins, um, because he. He wrote some unusual, some difficult, and some modern poetry. That alone would would uh, uh, would uh, qualify him for the accolades of the modern poetic or literary movement, 20th century. The fact that he was different. His, his was known as sprung rhythm. But um, he was he was a Jesuit priest, uh, and he. He had a tortured relationship, I think, both with the Jesuit order and with his 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 gift of poetry. Sometimes we went for actually for seven years at one point without having written any poetry at all, 
because he he felt there there was a contradiction between the very nuts and bolts uh, approach of the Jesuit order uh, and and their work and his vocation, and as I say, the more artistic um, and the more um, um, intangible fruits of, uh, of of poetic work. He he found there to be some sort of a contradiction. Yet there are those authors who say that. Eventually, particularly with his one monumental poem, the, the Wreck of the Deutschland, that he was able to reconcile reconcile the two. He he was uh, Hopkins grew up as a as a Church of England uh, during a member during the uh, Oxford revival movement, and um, eventually converted and joined uh, the Jesuit order. I think in 1868 and. He uh, studied philosophy, was ordained a priest in 1877, and was and and served uh, as um, sort of an assistant parish priest. He served as a professor. Um, he served um, as a as a as a teaching assistant, and was never particularly appreciated or successful in any of his fields. But what he's known for today is is for his poetry, and it's glorious Catholic poetry. Um, and it is, it is, it it, it both conce- as good poetry will, a good worship. It both conceals and it reveals at the same time. They say that that Hopkins didn't particularly want everybody to understand necessarily everything because much of his poetry is very personal, and yet at the same time everybody gets something from it. It's uh, when you look when you look at or listen to better remember when you listen to poetry when you listen to poetry, it's um. His poetry, it seems uh, weird, strange. Where does he get those words from? Why doesn't it strictly rhyme? Uh, uh, why, why does it sound so different from all other poetry? But uh, a- a- at the same time, he has a common touch in his poetry. The um, his his particular and unique contribution, which is sometimes referred to as a sprung rhythm. Uh, has as its as its principle depending on stress or accent rather than the number of feet in a line of poetry um it's really a form of free verse but a far more disciplined form of free verse but the interesting thing is that he and other commentators maintain that he was just imitating and using the rhythm of common speech maybe when he was in wales particularly or even in some of the northern english cities where he worked in the slums and he was with the common people. There's a certain poetry. There's a certain poetry in speech, especially for those who have grown up in, in that tradition. Probably one would see that in England. One would see that in Wales, Scotland, Ireland, too, for that matter. Um, and he, this found its way into his, into his verse rather than a sort of a, the strict rhyme at, at, at the end of the verse. Um, so if he's... It's something... Well, it would sound it would sound sort of trite, Stephen, to say, but you don't want to just talk about poetry. You have to really read poetry, and and most of all, you have to listen to poetry. Poetry still today, read read properly, um, has a tremendous has a tremendous power. Good poetry, poetry has been utterly dragged through the mud and just and just de- debased. Terribly, like all of the modern arts today, because it reflects the horrible modern reality of the worship of falsehood and ugliness. But good poetry has has that power to be able to do that. So 
so he interests us even as he um as he mystifies us there are two poems for example that he wrote um there was a at the Jesuit uh, college and scholasticate of Stonyhurst in England there because the Jesuits are the ones who you know uh, initiated the idea of um May as Mary's month and uh he uh there was a custom at Stonyhurst for the Jesuits to be encouraged the students um and the Jesuits themselves to to write poems in honor of our lady and to make that part of the May altar each year it was somehow they would be affixed to a shrine in honor of our as a tribute as a true loving filial tribute to the to the blessed virgin mary and um in 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 some of these that that is written that that have come down to us he wasn't particularly pleased with them because they were maybe a little bit more conventional but they're but they're ones that would appeal to most uh, to most catholics i would say and uh, and illustrate the um the 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 uh, lasting attraction of of this uh of this style of uh, the style of writing um he the, the blessed virgin compared to the air we breathe this is an example of um maybe a little off putting at first but an example of that's that sprung rhythm let me just read some of the some of the opening lines to give a sense of it wild air world mothering air nestling me everywhere that each eyelash or hair girdles some home betwixt the fleeciest frailest flixed snowflake that's fairly mixed with riddles and is life and every least thing's life this needful never spent and nursing element my more than meat and drink my meal at every wink this air which by life's law my lung must draw and draw now but to breathe its praise minds me in many ways of her who not only gave god's infinity dwindled to infancy welcome in womb and breast birth milk and all the rest but mother's each new grace that does now reach our race mary immaculate merely a woman yet whose presence power is great as no goddesses was deemed dreamed who this one work has to do that all god's glory through god's glory which would go through her and from her flow off and no way but so that's uh, those are some of the opening lines of uh, the may tribute that he gave uh to the blessed virgin mary uh there's um another poem called the may magnificat which is more conventional and because it's more conventionally he was less satisfied with it but it's something that would appeal more let me read just a little bit of this the may magnificat may is mary's month and i muse at that and wonder why her feasts follow reason dated due to season candlemas lady day but the lady month may why fasten that upon her with a feasting in her honor is it only it's being brighter than the most are than than the most are must delight her is it opportunist in flowers finds soonest ask of her the mighty mother her reply puts this other question what is spring 
Growth in everything, flesh and fleece, fur and feather, grass and green world all together. Star-eyed strawberry breasted throstle above her nested cluster of bugle-blue eggs, thin forms and warms the life within, and bird and blossom swell in sod or sheath or shell. That's great poetry, don't you think, Stephen? What do you think of it? No, it's great. It's great. I, I, I've always had a, I've always had a love for Father Hopkins. And 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 have you been put off by by the sprung rhythm or the unusual vocabulary? No, uh, I think I suppose it's it's having a uh, having started my poetry life with Robert Frost uh, in oh, college. <laughs> um, that I'm I'm much more into the the meaning and the the exegesis, uh, mm-hmm. sort of the I suppose the nerdy stuff behind poetry. Um, and the sound and rhythm come second. So for me, I was much more interested in the content. Ah, yes, yes, interesting. Well, um, what, what I found in researching a little bit for this short presentation, what I found interesting, but one of his, his greatest works, which was rejected by the Jesuits, the Jesuits would never publish it, the Wreck of the Deutschland, is that they say that in this poem, of, uh, theoretically about story of five German nuns exiled by the the, folk, the so-called folk laws of Bismarck's Germany. They're on the way to refuge in England, and the, the boat is caught in a storm in the Thames River, and uh, it capsizes, and, and the nuns die. It's a, theoretically, it's a story of that. The story is this, that he had, because he couldn't, you could see why, right? You could see how he couldn't justify, he, there's this prosaic, down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolts kind of Jesuit uh, suffered an awful lot from digestive problems. He was really a tortured poet, a tortured artiste. And laying on, he would lay on the floor of his room and correct test papers. That was one of his jobs. And it was a, it was an immense, incredible drudgery and more than almost like a crucifixion for him. But he did it for, for God's glory because he was a Jesuit. Um, but for seven years, he didn't write any poetry because he just couldn't justify the two. Uh, and of course, the the, the standard Victorian judge, English Jesuit of the day would would view poetry as having no place in their life, or if it had place, it would be something, say, in honor of Our Lady during May. Well, that would be all right, but not general poetry. But so he'd given it up because he was always he was always he was he was, he was a tortured soul. He didn't know how to make things come together, even though he's a poet. So he helps us make things come together. Uh, but he overheard his superior at recreation one day when the news came of the wreck of the Deutschland, saying, "I wish someone or someone," he said. He said, "Someone should write a poem about this." And he considered this to be the voice of God, the voice of the so he set to write his poem. And in the writing of his poem, they say he was able to somehow put it together for himself personally, the idea of being a poet and being a Jesuit priest, and 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 somehow to make it work. Um, and uh, he, he, he is a poet because poetry, uh, it's, it's a bit like drama. There has to be some sort of, um, there has to be uh, some sort of a conflict. And then you have to come to the good resolution of the conflict. And they say that's what the, the wreck of the Deutschland was from. And, then, and ever since then, even though his poetry was still not well received or necessarily published, nevertheless, he continued to write poetry uh, w- until he died. Um, the wreck of the Deutschland is is then a little bit the story of his own soul, and what I found interesting here I am at Saint Gertrude the Great is that he writes about Saint Gertrude the Great, and he's inspired by his own 
spiritual exercises, those of St. Ignatius, which were of one school of spirituality. Um, he's, I remember he, Ignatius is on the cusp of the mo- modern movement, the man, the realization of man, and that it's an extremely subjective form, very efficacious, but very subjective form of of spirituality puts, puts man, man's feelings and his sentiments uh, in, in the center, so that man may be then subjected to God. And he compares that um, and then goes off into a, really a praise for St. Gertrude, who had her own spiritual exercises, which were just seven in number, about the seven sacraments, about baptism and the renewal of the graces of baptism in particular. Quite a different spirit. The medieval German liturgical monastic spirituality is quite different from St. Ignatius. But um, by means of writing this poem, he was able to answer his the, the, this question that had tortured him, um, the famous Jesuit meditation of of the uh, of the, the the two standards: no man may serve two masters. And he was tortured by this uh, this idea of the, his poetic muse within him. Was that something pagan? Was that something outside of the Christian order that he needed to suppress? Or was this a gift from God that could be used for God's glory, and that was really part of who he was? And eventually he did understand that. But he writes, um, I recommend that the Wreck of the Deutschland, as with all of his poetry, you want to really hear it out loud. And when you sit down to read it yourself, try to read it to yourself out loud if you can, or have a little group and do poetry reading. How would that be for an arcane evening's entertainment? But if you have some nice port and maybe and maybe <laughs> a little cheese, it, it could go, go a little, little bit better. Um, but you'll find in there references to um, St. Gertrude the Great. He goes from talking about the German nuns, generically, now to St. Gertrude the Great, the German, and he actually points out that uh, Luther and Gertrude the Great were both born in the same German town, Saxony, the town of Eisleben, and uh, refers to uh, Gertrude as as Christ's lily, refers to Martin Luther as Cain, and um, uh, a, a very, very, um, very, very uh, brief, concise, and poetic reference really to the tragedy of the uh, of the Protestant revolt, very interesting. If you if you try to unpack it a little bit, and get into it. Um, so he he writes, for example, of of Gertrude. She was first of five and came of Quaffed sisterhood. O oh, Deutschland, double a desperate name, O oh, worldwide of its good. But Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town. Christ's Lily and beast of the waste wood. From life's dawn, it is drawn down. Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts, they have sucked the same. That's uh, the 19th stanza of the, from the, that is the 19th stanza of, of the Wreck of the Deutschland. So poetry does have some um, rewards, not obvious rewards, but, but other rewards as well, worth our study. But this is this is just personal, but I have to say that whenever I read poetry, right, not just maybe like select one for the bullets and look it over quickly, but I actually sit down and read it, I read it to myself and I read it out loud, I always find it to be a wonderfully elevating and a relaxing experience. If you're in a really busy, busy life and you're doing going from one thing to another to another to another, um, I, I seriously propose poetry 
as a part of your relaxation. It's a shame that it's almost gone or that it's reduced to, it's, it's only, in the, the, only the seculars, only the godless would have some appreciation for it because they use it, understandably so, as a religion replacement. But we've got the real religion, and our religion oozes out poetry at, every, at, at, at its every corner, as it were. Um, and it's, real, it's, it's elevating, it is relaxing, it is recreating or recreating, I think, to, to read poetry. And I wish more could, could discover that. It's not just something for the, for the classroom, because you have to do it. It, um, it is something that it elevates you, and thus it, it, it rests you and makes you feel better. And you return to your work, not as with the case of many modern uh, so-called recreations, enervated and drained. So like you've just, you know, you went to a soccer match, say, oh, say, and you end up in the middle of a soccer riot, and somebody hits you over the head because you're on the wrong side of the team, or maybe you get mobbed at the entranceway. Well, you're, not gonna, you're just not going to be going back to your work to, to refresh, to relax. Whereas if you just settle down with some good Hopkins poetry, think the, the good that that could do for you, Stephen. Yeah, so I, I I don't disagree, Your Excellency. <laughs> Good. So talking um, about, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say those are definitely more ambitious poems. I think the uh, the the first one we started with are the Blessed Virgin compared to the air we breathe, and the wreck of the Deutschland, even much longer mm-hmm. than that. But I thought maybe we could look at a, 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 a shorter poem, so people, I think they maybe have been intimidated. Um, by by some of uh, what we've talked about so far, but maybe we could work on something smaller. Do you have um, God's grandeur handy? Yes, I do. Let me just. Um, yes, I do have God's grandeur here. That's a, however, um, a, a very good example of um, of the sprung sprung rhythm again, and this idea of. Um, in fact, I used I use really Hopkins' phrase talking about how God's beauty is sort of oozes out of our liturgy, our worship, and also out of, uh, out, of, out of good poetry. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from a shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. For And for all this nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, Oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. At least it's a shorter poem. It does have its challenges, but it's magnificent. It's it's, oh, it's truly a work of art. That one. Oh yeah. It's a it's a wonderful image. I'm left with that. I, I can't. Um, you know, there's different emotions that poetry evokes in 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 the reader and sometimes you involuntarily smile or laugh no matter how many times you've read the line and i don't know how many times i've read god's grandeur but mm-hmm. i always get a big smile at the end because it's such a a wonderful image you to think of the holy ghost as this 
this large bird at the edge yes, of the world is. with with right wings and it's not obviously it's not a how do you picture the holy ghost i mean it's not he's not a, uh, something you can describe and this is one particular iteration one particular way to think of it and it's a it's a benign one surely but it's uh it's interesting in its own way I, I always I always like the second line myself, Stephen, and, and it always distracts me slightly because it makes me think, did they have aluminum foil in 19th century England and Jesuit establishments? When was that invented? Because because he writes, it will flame out like shining from shook foil. <laughs> so I, I think of a I think of a of, of a big piece you've just ripped off the roll of aluminum foil, which just, just kind of catches the sunlight and shines there. <laughs> I, I remember when we were studying studying this poem in college that uh, this was possibly identified as electricity and um, the controversy of identifying uh, the power of God with electricity, et cetera. Um, oh, I see. That's interesting. Yeah. And and because it's juxtaposed in the same in the same stanza with the fact that men now wear shoes and don't have contact with the land, and he's lamenting yes. the sort of feet. Yeah. industrial thing but he's starting with electricity which is what mm-hmm. kicks this off um i see i see interesting yeah yeah so that's really truly truly i i always remember the first well the first hopkins poem which i remember probably in sophomore english class at the, the minor seminary in detroit during the 60s um has a latin title and i think that drew me uh it's 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 based on um Jeremiah and a, a phrase that occurs in the liturgy. So the title is "Justus quidem tu as Domine." Thou indeed art just, O Lord. And I mm. think this was, must have been one of his last poems that he wrote uh, before he died, because as I say, after the wreck of the Deutschland, he continued to write. Um, and this poem, I think, sort of sums up his life and his approach. Thou art indeed just, Lord, if I contend with thee, but sir. So what I plead is just. Why do sinners' ways prosper? And why must disappointment all I endeavor end? Uh, that, that's how it opens, and I, I urge our, our, our listeners to look it up and, and to give that a read sometime. It sort of summarizes, in a sense, his life, his life of, uh, of disappointment, but at the same time recognizing as a Christian the vanity of trying to strive with God. And that, uh, and they, he ends it this way. Let me just read that the ending. Yeah, I was going to say I love the last line of this poem. Your excellency. Yes, them birds build, but not I build. No, but strain times eunuch, and not breed one work that wakes mine. O thou Lord of life, send my roots rain. A beautiful, a beautiful ending, and 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 one full of hope truly one full of hope for someone who was probably dying of dysentery at that point. Poor man. Mm-hmm. Typhus, rather. He died of typhus. Well, Your Excellency, I, I, you've got 40 hours devotion this week, so I don't want to take I too do. much of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us for someone who's never heard of Father Hopkins, who's not that into poetry, they're listening to this episode, uh, you know, Stephen and, and the bishop are just trying to trick me into some, uh, some poetry <laughs> reading. Can you offer some some words of encouragement to the, uh, the the novice. Well, as with anything else which is worthwhile, it does demand a little bit of applied uh, uh, of applied concentration. But uh, remember this: that poetry is not just a, a series of words that you'd have to work your way through. 
remember that poetry should be heard with the ear. And that's, 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 if you don't take that approach, you'll never really be able to get into it. And poetry, like anything Catholic, good poetry, like anything Catholic, is um, at the, uh, the French would say, at the port, at the door of everybody. And so it's no, uh, you don't have to be uh, an academic, you don't have to be a college student or high school to, to appreciate poetry. It should be part of everyone's life. And if you're leading a Catholic life, it is already part of your life. Finally, uh, American pragmatism. If you're looking for something for a quick uplift, get some good poetry. Get some poetry that you enjoy. Make that a part of your life. Read it, but read it out loud. Don't be, don't be shy about it either. Or have someone else to read it out loud for you. It will give you an immediate lift because that is what true art does for you. And you need to have true art as part of your life. Ah, see, there's an internal rhyme there, Stephen. Mm, yes. Well, I think that's, those are hopefully words well taken. Your Excellency, I'll let, you, uh, I'll let you get back to your day. And thanks for joining us on this episode of Chat Reviews. I assure you, it's been my pleasure. God bless you. Bye. Thank you. On to the final segment of our episode today, which is our board game review. And Nicholas Wansbutter has graciously agreed to review Puerto Rico. This is a game I've always wanted to play, um, but I don't own it, and I've I've never had a chance to play it. I'm hoping to play it. I I have the great privilege of being able to spend some time with Nicholas uh, later this year, and I'm hoping to play this game. In the meantime, for those of you who haven't heard of it, haven't played it, or have played it, please uh, enjoy Nicholas's review of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a board game designed by Rio Grande Games and uh, Andreas Seafarth from that company. In that game, players take the role of a settler in the Spanish colony of Puerto Rico during the Age of Discovery. And the way you win the game is by... Whoever collects the most victory points at the end of the game wins, and victory points are collected by sending goods back to Spain, uh, building certain buildings, and uh, a couple of other ways. It's a classic Euro game or German game, insofar as it's uh, got fairly simple rules, straightforward rules. It doesn't take too long to play, under an hour. It's um, abstract game pieces, so I mean you have like little uh, pucks, little hockey puck-looking pieces that represent your settlers uh, on your plantations, just as an example. Um, but it's a it's a very interesting game. It's a very popular game, and it's a game that I was a bit skeptical of before I uh, was gifted it for Christmas one year. It has a very different uh, game mechanic. Uh, the game's played over several rounds, and each round, each player selects a roll card. And uh, these cards, there's a settler, mayor, builder, craftsman, trader, captain, and prospector. And uh, what happens is the person who selects the roll, they get a special bonus, and then everyone gets to do what, what that roll allows so, uh, for example, the uh, settler, uh, when that is uh, selected, the person who selected it can take a, a quarry or selects a tile randomly for tobacco, coffee, uh, cotton, 
uh, or indigo or corn. And uh, that's the only time that people can plant fields is when the settler is purchased. Or uh, for another example, when the uh, mayor is selected, that's when you get new colonists that you can place on your board. And the person who selects that role, they get to take an additional bonus colonist um, versus everyone else. So there, there's a a lot of strategy involved. Uh, I, another thing that makes a classic Euro game is the fact that luck doesn't play very much of a role. Uh, there's very little randomization in it. Really, the only randomization is the the tiles in terms of what uh, products you're able to plant in your fields. But otherwise, it's uh, very strategic of picking the right role at the right time so that you can get the advantages you need to build up your colony. Uh, it doesn't have a game board in the traditional sense. Uh, each player has a little card that has an island on it and a city. Uh, the city's kind of like a, a blown-up version of the city of San Juan that you have at the edge of your fields on the island. And uh, then there's a central board that has a... Uh, that basically, all it is is a holding place for the different buildings that you can purchase and a bank that has uh, gold coins that you can receive in a, a few different ways. One of them being the prospector role that I mentioned or selling the goods that you harvest in the marketplace. So there's a strategy there of do you go for victory points by sending it back to the old world or do you go for uh, money to build buildings that will give you other bonuses so um, uh, it, it sounds a little bit strange, but once you get into it, it, it's a game that's really easiest to learn how to play just by starting to play. As long as you have one person that knows how to play, you'll be off to the races. Uh, so really, it's a game that anyone can play. It's not one that a, a geeky gamer like myself uh, uh, is uh, capable only of playing. Even the newest uh, person to board games can pick up this game quickly and easily and uh, and be quite competitive in it. It's um, like Settlers of Catan, it's good in that uh, the, the game, it, it's very hard to fall really far behind everyone else, so the game always feels quite close and it always seems to end uh, sooner than you'd like it to, which uh, increases the replay value. So it's an excellent game in that it can be played in a relatively short time. It's uh, for all level of gamer, not just dedicated board gamers. And um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, right up there with Settlers of Catan, which we've discussed before in Trad Reviews, and is a, a favorite. Um, it's quite different from Settlers of Catan, so, uh, you know, I don't know that I'd compare them to say that it's it's better. It doesn't involve as much interaction between players. So in that regard, uh, I compare it since one of the main reasons I like to promote board games is as a, a better alternative for social interaction than some of the things that modern society typically offers us. But um, it uh, is certainly well worth your time and uh, very enjoyable and Although the rules are easy, the strategies that will lead to victory aren't readily apparent the first time you play. So it's one that you're definitely going to, going to want to play over and over. 
so certainly something that I uh, highly recommend, and it's something a little bit different, something of the ordinary, but uh, will we'll give a, a evening of great entertainment every time. Well, I enjoyed listening to that review by Nicholas, and I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us for yet another episode of Trad Reviews. I want to remind you that Trad Reviews is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. However, permission can usually be easily obtained by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. If you have movies, books, films, uh, games that you want nominated, please send those to us. We have our own uh, email address to deal with that. That's tradreviews at truerestoration.org. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.